Well, guys, grab hold of a Bible tonight. We are in the Gospel of Luke on Wednesday nights. Tonight, you're going to make your way to Luke chapter 16. Wednesday nights, we work through the Bible and do so about a chapter at a time and hoping that it's a place that God is meeting you and drawing you into the things that He has for you, hoping that we're coming alongside that and He would even work in a fresh way to that this evening. So again, hopefully you got a Bible and you've made your way to Luke chapter 16. For you guys who are joining us online, the same invitation is given. Grab a Bible, whether it's physically a Bible or opening it up on an electronic device, be with us and follow with us with a desire that through God's Word, He would speak into our lives in very, very real ways. With an expectancy of Him to do that, let's take another moment and just pray, leading you in it, but asking you to pray as well. Let's position our hearts and ask God to position our hearts to hear from Him this evening what He would want to say to us. Would you join me in that? Father, here we are, known by You, seen by You, and we step into a moment just recognizing You have given us Your truth. Thank You. Now help us to hear it. God, in the midst of this evening, would You speak through Your Word and by Your Spirit, whether it's through something that You want to place in my mouth that would speak Your truth into lives, whether you just want to work through that, through the verses that just jump off the page at us, or where even Holy Spirit, you rabbit trail us into something you have for us. God, you would work specifically, I believe that. And with an expectancy, ask right now, would you just soften our hearts that we would each one be in a place that we would hear what you would say to us tonight. God, help in that. We ask for that right now as we seek your face. We do so together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Money makes the world go round. I mean, maybe you've heard it, right? Kind of an old song, but a truth in many ways that work through that. When you hear that phrase, I don't even know what it does in your life when you think about what do you you mean by that? Well, there is a certain sense of how powerful it is, that everywhere there is, there's there's this piece of that. And an interesting thing is that Jesus, because of that, often speaks about money. I mean, he often takes the reality of what money is and speaks it into our lives in a way that is incredibly effective. Not actually because money's the real issue, but money in many ways so often defines what God would say to us and, and even where our hearts are. I, I want to draw you to that this evening because often Jesus would speak about it, but all through this chapter he does. Yeah, we're going to see two stories or a parable and, a, and an account that Jesus is going to give. And in the midst of that, kind of an address, but all of them weave around this idea of money and riches and how it defines things in our lives. And we kind of want to just take a wide angle view at that. Now, as we do that, I want to just be clear, there's so much more. There's so much more than we're going to dive into. And hopefully even the Holy Spirit would just take some of that into your lives. But I want to give you at least six things, six truths that kind of Jesus brings out about this that will help you and, and help me in our understanding of what that looks like and, and how that works within our lives. And it's so longing that God would just meet us in that. So let's begin with a story, a parable of an unjust steward. Why don't you join me there in verse 1? It says, He also said to His disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods, or he was embezzling, he was cheating on him is the idea. So he called him, and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be my steward. Then the steward said within himself, 
What shall I do? For my master is taking my stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, well, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in the generation than the sons of light. Okay, pause. Kind of catch it. I think you're fine of falling. It's a crazy story. Jesus kind of just begins to tell this story of a man that has a steward that's began embezzling on him. He gets caught, and, it's, and, and his response to it is a very kind of a shrewd way of dealing with things. It's a weird story. Let's just be honest. Some struggle with this in one sense, like, Jesus, what are you doing? I mean, he's certainly not commending this. He's certainly not, you know, holding this man as a, you know, kind of paragon of virtue to us. It's actually a parable or a story in contrast that he's going to show us something that's altogether wrong. And this is wrong. Let's just make no mistake about it. If this has happened to you, if you've had somebody that's cheated or embezzled on you or taken from you and, and then kind of went further, you would understand this is like entirely wrong. And Jesus in no way is commending that, but it is a contrast. It is a contrast. So again, you're tracking with the story. I hope you can kind of feel it. Here's this rich man. He's got a man who's just kind of an employee who's working, who's managing his affairs. He is embezzling. He gets caught. And the man begins to scheme, kind of goes to all of his debtors and, and, and kind of you know, slices their debts both on both sides of, of the equation in order to gain favor with the, the rich man's just debtors and the, the people who are a part of that. Jesus tells a story, and as he's telling us again, he just says it in a very fascinating way. He says it there again in verse 8, so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in this generation than the generation of the sons of light. It's a challenging statement. Jesus says the, the problem is that some people who are living in sin and they're unjust, they're, they're more careful, more precise, more kind of thinking things through than some of us who are the sons of light. That they're, they're, they're looking at their lives, they're evaluating things, and they're doing things almost with more precision, more accuracy, shrewdness, kind of having the idea of wisdom, of almost just being able to ascertain and look at life. And so Jesus is challenging us to this. He's, he's calling us to that. So, so what does that mean? I mean, how does that even apply into us? Well, again, hear what Jesus says. Verse 9. He says, And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. Okay. So, Let's kind of principalize that. Let's give you one of six things we want to just talk about tonight. And one of the things is he's challenging us with our money. He's challenging us with how we see money, and all of us have to deal with money, whether you feel like you have little or much. One of the things he's going to challenge us to do is to use money, if I can say it this way, for eternal pleasure. Now, I could say eternal treasure, and that would be true, but the danger is you might just tune out when I say it. But he's saying, okay, use your money. So when you think about it, you would think, how am I going to enjoy this into eternity? How am I going to you know, see what this would look like? And that's, again, what Jesus says. 
He says, I want you to make friends by yourself, by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He says, when you, when you, when you, when you get into heaven and you're there, that what you have here will, will bring you treasure there. Now, Jesus talks about this often. I think about it in the Sermon on the Mount where he simply said, you know, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So the problem with, with treasures here is they just go away. They either go away by theft or they just go away by, by, by misuse or, or just kind of the idea of, of just moving away in so many ways. Is that If you have treasures here, they can be taken. But he challenges us. He says, but I want you to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It's a fascinating thing. He says, when you think about your money, I want you to think, what's this going to work like in my life eternally? It's a pretty powerful reality, but can I ask it in the most practical way? What in the world does he mean by that? I mean, what is he saying? I mean, how do you send treasures into heaven? I mean, there's no way to open up a savings account, you know, in your name. And like, I'm just going to send money, you know, just, you know, kind of high yield savings into eternity. I mean, how is it you trans translate this? How do you actually do that? Well, again, he gives it to us in a pretty simple way. He says, I want you to you know, make friends by yourself by unrighteous, unrighteous mammon. That he talks to us about a way that we invest, well, maybe I just want to say it this way, into people that it becomes something we're thinking about. I, I was thinking about this this morning. If you're reading with us through the Bible, you got a chance to read Matthew 25 with us. In Matthew 25, Jesus pictures eternity in a number of different parables, and he tells one of the sheep and the goats, which is both a convicting and, and hard-to-understand parable at one place, but in many ways, he looks at it, and he begins to speak to the righteous, to those who live their lives rightly before him, and he simply says it this way. He says, "'For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty.'" and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In many ways, he looks at these, and he says, here's what you did. You invested into me. You, when, you, when you did that for the least of these, Jesus said, you were doing that for me. And in many ways, that's what he's calling us to. Again, just to kind of point out the wording in the way that Jesus describes it, he says it there again in verse 9. Make friends by yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you. I just want you to focus on those words. I want you says, I want you to, when you fail, they may receive you. It's an interesting thing. Some translations might say when it fails. It kind of works either way. Either when you fail or the money fails. He says, You're gonna do this in a way that they, they as people. They's in this sense of, of living your life, you know, in that sense of being a blessing to others. He says, so that when you fail, they can receive you. And again, he just tells it to us. That's the challenge, is to take money, which he calls unrighteous mammon, which all by itself is a pretty fascinating description. It's like, okay, it's not even really good. I mean, money itself is, is not eternal nor righteous, but use it. Make friends, Jesus says. Make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon. It's a fascinating thing to think it through. So the idea is money, when you think about money, that should be partly what you're thinking about. Now, therein again lies the challenge because maybe it isn't. Many Americans, when they think about money, all they really think about is, you know, first of all, you know, making it through the end of the month, like, hey, am I going to make it to then? 
And then they're thinking, you know, how do I save? How do I save for retirement or vacation or whatever that is? But so often it's entirely selfish, and we almost don't even realize that it is. That it's just about me. And his challenge is, hey, you want to go past a year from now, past 50 years from now. You want to think, let's just say it this way, 100 years from now. And you want to be there in heaven, and your money be bearing interest, which would be the idea of being a blessing, that somebody would be coming up to you in heaven and saying, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you that you invested into maybe the gospel that brought, you know, the gospel to me, or you took care of, or you either did personally, you did something. This is, that's what you want to aim for. Not just in that sense of your own, hey, it's all about me, and it's all about living, it's all about just making it through retirement. There ought to be a sense that when you think about it, you're thinking about, What's this, what would this look like into eternity? And again, the only way that works, the only rewards that the Bible lays out to us are the things that we really say, okay, I want to do that so somebody, you know, so, so something would be there and they'd be able to come and say, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Thank you for, for how you did that. Thank you for, for in that to do what, again, what Jesus is saying is make friends by unrighteous mammon that they will receive you into a heavenly home, that they would receive you into the midst of that. It's a pretty powerful reality. And I just want to say it again in a very simple way, though it's profound and bigger than this. That should be a part of your life. I mean, part of the way that money should be in our lives is the kind of thing where that is actively one of the things we think about with what are we going to do with our money? What am I going to do with what's there? It's not just about me. It's not just about making it. It's like, I want, I want, to use this for eternity. I, I, I want to be a part of that, and it should be an active place that you consider. And Jesus challenges us to this reality of being those who kind of gaze at this and say, okay, I want to do this. And again, the simple challenge is, is, is he says, okay, some people in the world, they're just so much wiser than you. They're not just living for the present. I mean, that's this, uh, this unjust steward. He's like, well, you know, okay, this isn't going to work for me now, but if I do this, this will be a blessing for me in the future. And he was thinking about his future in ways that sometimes we don't. Sometimes, again, it's so easy to live only in the, hey, take care of here and now, but the idea is Jesus saying, hey, we should have that kind of just care, that wisdom, that shrewdness that would say, hey, I want to live for something that's bigger than just today. Well, with that, Jesus actually then takes and turns it all around and gives us another view on the same man. And he simply says it this way, verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in another, what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So he used this unjust steward as an example of somebody who is shrewd. Now he flips it around and says, okay, but he was unjust. And he, and he simply challenges us in a sense of, of being faithful. He says, when we think about money and we think about how that works, that we should be faithful with money that we should be faithful with that because in so many ways that opens up just avenues for further trust. Or again, he says, if you're faithful in what is least, then you'll be faithful in what is much. If you're unfaithful in what is least, you'll be unfaithful in what is much. 
God here lets us know that he takes seriously this, that he takes seriously even how we handle money, how we handle our money, how we handle whatever is entrusted to us. And he just tells us, hey, you don't want to be like this unjust steward who got caught cheating. You want to be somebody who's faithful. You want to be somebody that handles all that's put into your care with faithfulness. And then Jesus kind of likens that and says, okay, if you could be faithful in that, then that would open up for you true riches, eternal riches, that God would trust it to you. I don't know if that's you this evening. I don't know if I'm speaking to somebody specifically, but I have to think if you're, you're coming in on a Wednesday night here or joining us online, there is a certain sense that you long for that, that you long for something eternal. And it might literally be that you're, I don't know why God's not doing more in my life. I don't know. I mean, I kind of pray for more opportunities. I pray that, that God would pour power into my life or he would invest things into me that I could, you know, faithfully, you know, kind of get, I just want to do big things for eternity. One of the things that God says is, you know, that he won't do that if we're not faithful with what we already have. That in one sense, sometimes the very ways that God seeks to shape our lives towards even usefulness for his kingdom is how we handle that. And he says, if you're not faithful in, in, in money, why would I entrust into you other treasures? Because the same unfaithfulness you have there will flow into it. And the challenge then is to be those who handle things faithfully with a sense of recognizing, hey, money is not, you know, it's, it's not eternal, it's going to go away, but I want to be a faithful person. I want to be a fa- someone who can be trusted in my job, in my family, even in my own life, the kind of person that you could say, hey, that person is trustworthy. Because when that trust is there, it opens up for us incredible opportunities. I think about what we're doing on Sunday mornings, and certainly Daniel has to be one of those incredible examples of one that told us in Daniel 6 that, you know, they searched his life for unfaithfulness, tried to find somewhere where he had embezzled or done some, you know, wrong in the kingdom, and there was found nothing. And yet God poured into his life incredible riches. God poured into his life spiritual riches and treasures of being able to impact eternity. And so Jesus is simply telling us, if we can see this, yes, you know, there is a sense of living for eternity, but money is something that we get to be faithful in. Now, there's also a challenge in this just to understand, hey, this is a great place to grow. I mean, if that's someplace right now that you're struggling, then it's a good place to say, okay, I want to be someone who's faithful. This, if, I, if I can be faithful here, if I can be faithful, faithful in what is least, then who knows what God would bring into my life? I mean, who knows what that would be? And there's a challenge there to begin to say, okay, that's what I want to be. I, I, I want to look at that. And so Jesus calls us to it, recognizing it is unrighteous, ma'am, and recognizing it is things that are altogether wrong, but that challenge to us that we would be faithful people. And I long that that would be so for you. I long that people in your family or your business or your workplace would look and say, that's someone you can trust. <laughs> they, they're, they're faithful. And God would tell us, hey, if you're faithful in what is least, then, then someone would entrust into your hands true riches. And certainly as we think about money, that should be a part of it, of just longing to be faithful. Okay, so principles we're thinking through, that becomes a part of our story, part of thinking through what money is, that money is meant to have an eternal kind of treasure and, and aiming at eternal pleasure, to say, I want to live for that day that will make a difference, and yet I want to be found someone who's faithful. 
Now, it's right after that that Jesus gives a principle. Now, some of your translations or Bibles will you know, have bullet points or they have paragraph headings, and sometimes verse 13 is placed in this previous paragraph, but really it flows into the next. And he gives us a, a very clear principle that needs to be understood. He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for they either hate the one and love the other, or will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is kind of a, a term for money that would do, just speak about what that is. And, and he would say, okay, you can't do that. And then he just begins to give kind of an illustration. He says, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided them. So he's taking this whole thing and he's going to be speaking into those people who love money. And he gives us such a very clear principle, one that I hope you understand now. And if not, I just hope it sticks with you in a way that works, because I'm telling you it's absolutely huge. He says you can't do both. You can't. Nobody can serve God and money. It is, by God's design, impossible. There's something about your spiritual makeup that has a place for only one God. You're designed by God that, there's, that it can never be that you literally can serve two at the same time. One always becomes the primary, and, and, and this, whatever else you kind of take as, a, as an important thing, it moves into secondary position. And Jesus just says, with absolute certainty, you just can't do both. It's impossible. It's impossible for you to be in a place that you would say, okay, God, I'm serving you, and you're my God, and at the same time have money in that position that, that would be that way, and yet right there, there's the challenge. Hey, some try to do that where, where money has this, you know, hold over their life that is almost God-like, and in many ways, he's just telling us you can't do it. You can't do it. In fact, to say it in another way, kind of as a separate principle, but really flowing out of it, he says, you're only going to be able to be loyal to one of them. Again, going back to verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. It will always move you to a place that, that, that if, if money takes that primary place, it will push God out, which is, again, exactly where he goes. So kind of laying this as a biblical principle, you can't do both. Then he highlights these guys who are Pharisees. He says, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. You probably know, but just quick understanding, Pharisees, these are the religious people of the day incredibly religious. Anybody in their day would have assumed, hey, they're the ones that are right with God. But Jesus says, actually, these Pharisees, they really are loving money. They've allowed money to take that primary place. They were those who love, all, love money, and out of that, they deride Jesus, or they turn up their nose, if you will, against Jesus, partly out of that. And so Jesus just begins to explain. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for it is highly esteemed among men as an abomination in the sight of God. So he's looking at these, he says, here's the thing that people would be, okay, these guys are amazing. They're just before men, but God says, I know what's actually happening. I know what's actually happening in your heart, that God looks there and he sees that. And again, in the, in the scheme of this, this right now, this evening, 
he knows what's per- first, what's taken that first place, who they're really serving. And once again, it's money. And God says he knows that. And he just ties into it and says, you know, the world might say things are great. Those things which are pleasing to the world, they can be an abomination to God. There's those things that the world would say, okay, that's good, that's a, that's a good way to do life, or even kind of speak over that in a way, it says, you know, what the world values, God can despise what's highly esteemed among men, verse 15, is an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus gives an illustration. It says, the law and the prophets were till John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone who is pressing into it. It's a pretty little interesting kind of a proverb that seemed to be used in that day and maybe has a couple of different applications, but here it would seem to be speaking of these Pharisees. It says here they're talking about the kingdom of God. They're talking about heaven, and these Pharisees are saying, hey, we think we're going to make it. We're trying to press our way into the kingdom of God, but Jesus is saying it's not working. It, it, you know, they're, not, they're not entering in there because they're not coming you know, into the way that God would have, and so he uses this as an illustration. He says it is easier in verse 17 um, for heaven and earth to pass away than even one title or tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her or is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, it's a powerful reality. And I want to just kind of catch this in a way that both talks about what Jesus is saying, but then puts it into the midst of this. He's talking about what the Bible calls about for, for God's plan for marriage and God's plan for that, that, that one man, one woman for life, that's always God's plan. The Pharisees had come up with ways to get around that, uh, to make divorce kind of acceptable, as if it was acceptable in God's eyes. God's eyes. Now, again, it's a bigger subject than we have time to dive into. There are biblical reasons for divorce. There are reasons that God would honor, and, and He speaks about that, both in the Old Testament and in the New. That's not our study tonight. And it's not really what Jesus is talking about. We're not really talking about marriage nor you know, any of those things, though, again, that has reality into this. The simple principle He's bringing across this way is, here are these people that they're, they're serving money and they're serving themselves. And because of that, when push comes to shove, it was their own selfish interest that took precedence. It, it took precedence over what God clearly said. In other words, again, what Jesus is trying to tell us is you can't serve both God and money. You're going to be loyal to one and disloyal to the other. That the reality is, is because they are these who live for money, that live for selfishness, it's worked out into their lives where the scriptures came in and confronted them in, into what, you know, they were being called to live and, and the life that God had for them, and they failed to live up to it. They, they just looked at it and, and came up with excuses to, to move around that. Again, all those are powerful realities just to understand, but the key factor in this is understanding how this whole thing plays out, that all of that happened because God wasn't first, because they, the, there is this place, Jesus says, you can't serve both, and therein lies the challenge for you and I, that we think about this right now, and I'm just telling you as we think about what money is, and we think about its power, we think about it, its place, and one of the scary things is if dollars, whether it's one or a hundred or a million, have priority into your life, it'll make the decisions for you. If this is first in your life, then somewhere along the line, it's going to come face to face where what you want and what God says 
come head to head. And at that moment, what's God in your life wins. At that moment, whatever you've said, okay, this is their Jesus, you can't do both. You can't serve God and money. You're going to be loyal to one, and, and, and the other you're going to dishonor. The other you're going to move away from. It will always happen. And so the challenge is for us to, is to kind of look into that whole place and, and say, okay, I get it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm pressing into this, and I just need to recognize how challenging this is because in so many ways, money does become a god. I mean, it's very specifically, it's one of those things that we trust in, we, we, we rely on to, to help us, how we're going to get out of trouble, or how we're going to face the future, or any other thing, and what he's telling us is it cannot be, that this needs to become subservient to our God. It's like, God, in you I trust, and, and you know what? Take it or leave it. You know, money is, is it's going to go away one way or the other, but this is not going to be the thing that calls the shots in my life. It's not going to be the thing that makes the decisions of my life. And the sad reality is, though I speak that, I wonder how real it is in so many lives. I'm just telling you. For so many people in our world, this is the thing that makes the decisions. What they decide to do with their life, the career they go into, the, the way they're going to spend their, 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 their employment or any other thing, the fundamental thing that for most people it is, is how much will I get? I mean, because that's the thing that makes the decision in my life. This makes the decision. It's really about what, what I get out of it. Instead of saying, God, what do you want from my life? God, the, the, the thing that's going to make the decision over where I spend my days, where I spend my time, how, how I live my life, it's not that this is not a part of that. I recognize that money's a part of it, but it's, it's not my God. It's not the thing that makes the decisions for me. That, that it ought to be in that place that when I think about this, that, that money is, is the servant of my life not my God. I, I, money becomes a way that God can work through, and I, and I can, but I can take it or leave it because these are not the things that I live for. And that reality becomes so incredibly powerful. And yet I'm just challenging you right now. For some of you, it's a bigger struggle than you realize. Money is so prevalent as the God of our world that you don't even realize that you look to it as such that money is so much making the decisions of your life, that this is this, you know, just it's a, it's a, no, a given that whatever it would be would do this instead of saying, God is the God of my life. He's the one that I'm looking to, to, to lead me and guide me and show me, and, and he's the one that I'm going to put my trust in. And so Jesus is challenging us to that, and he says, if you don't do this, it'll work its way into a place that, that you will just entirely miss the, the things that are there, ultimately missing what God has. And so the, the key factor becoming in that, that it must be so. That's a battle that all of us have to face. Again, I hope that right now as I'm even saying that some of you are like, man, I, I recognize that battle and I have fought and I do fight that battle. If you think you don't, that's more concerning to me. You know, if you can look and say, I get it. I see that. I recognize even in that. And it's like, I am constantly trying to have him to say, okay, God, you take precedence and, and, and you're my God. You're the one that I trust in. And, and Jesus is calling us to that, which makes us in, in so many ways why it's so important. When Jesus shared this in the sermon, he says, where your treasure is, it really is where your heart is. Really to define both who you are and, and what's in the midst of it. So he calls us that that would be God, that we need to be those who in the midst of this find him and him alone to be our God. 
Again, huge principles. I hope helpful, but not yet done. So Jesus is sharing this, and now he tells another account. It's an interesting one. The, the story is of, of a rich man and Lazarus. You might just notice with me in verse 19. He says, there was a certain rich man who is clothed in purple and fared in linen and clothed in purple and in fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at the gate. So he begins to tell this account of the rich man and Lazarus. Some of you just kind of traditionally, they might say, okay, well, the rich man's name is Dives. It's never actually given anywhere in scripture, but Dives actually is the Latin for rich. So that's kind of where it came from in, in many ways. And so he tells us this account. Now, interestingly enough, it doesn't say it's a parable. It doesn't say it's a story, which is often a fictional account to, to illustrate a truth. Some believe that this is not, that in maybe in many ways Jesus is telling us something that actually happened and, and, and through that window could speak into that. Now, that's a fascinating reality. In fact, there are dozens of incredible thoughts that kind of just lock ourselves in the midst of this story, but we're going to try to stay on target and, and stay, you know, in the midst of what Jesus is sharing. So again, he's just painted for us two pictures, two different people. One of them is a very rich man. This is a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. This is the kind of person who's exceptionally rich. The idea of fared sumptuously has the idea of a, of a banquet, uh, of kind of an extravagant kind of feast and meal that we might think of at a holiday, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving. But this man is so wealthy, it's his daily. It's his daily kind of place, that he's just, he is just living it up. I mean, he just lives very luxuriously. He lives at kind of the top of the food chain, if we want to think about it that way. And then he paints the second picture. But there's a beggar named Lazarus who's full of sores. His body, he has nothing. He's just, he's just laid there at the gate, verse 21, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, if I was like a really good kind of like, I mean, I just want to tell you, there's just not more of a tragic picture than this. I mean, this is just like, I mean, this is like, this man has nothing. I mean, he's got sores all over his body and he's just sitting there watching just the crumbs fall off this man's table going, you know, I just want to, can I have a crumb? And then, then the dogs come and begin to lick his sores. I mean, it's just, it's a miserable, horrible, yucky, unfair, terrible picture. That's the point. Jesus gives it to us, and he says, okay, so the beggar died, verse 22, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now let's just pause and be clear. Eternal destiny is not based on money. The, the rich man doesn't go to Hades or hell because he's rich. Neither does Lazarus go to Abraham's bosom because he's poor. That's not the way it works. I mean, that's not the way eternity works. That's not the way life works. Jesus is really clear. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father but through Him. It's belief in Him and belief in God that determines our eternal destiny. And it's very, very true. There are rich people who are incredibly just favored by God. We have Abraham, we have Job, we have David. We have people that throughout Scripture were incredibly godly people and incredibly blessed. 
And and there are others who are incredibly poverty-stricken, and their souls were equally poverty-stricken. So again, please understand this. This isn't a story that has the idea that, okay, all the rich people are going to suffer, and all the poor people are going to be blessed. That's not the story. But it is a story that takes these two pictures and just lets us know that eternity changes everything. Eternity absolutely changes everything. So we have these two stories, and they are at the far end of the spectrum. So we have this incredibly rich man that has absolutely everything, and this incredibly poor man that has absolutely nothing. And what Jesus is challenging us to understand is that when they step into eternity, the the, the position of the souls, I mean, that changes everything. For this rich man, he has lived his entire life you know, in one sense, or at least this this season of life, having everything he could possibly imagine. But he steps into eternity. And without that, without having his soul right with God, he now finds that incredibly just lost. I mean, where it becomes nothing, where he finds himself now being in torment, it says. Lazarus, on the other hand, has lived his life as horribly as you could possibly think about living it. But because his soul is right with God. I mean, that actually radically changes. And partly through this, there's a, there's a challenge of understanding it and maybe trying to say it as clear as I can. Hey, you're not either one of these. I mean, I don't think there's anybody tonight that's like, that's me. It's like, I'm the rich man. I, I live sumptuously every day. But neither are you the poor man. You live like I live somewhere in between. But the challenge is, is to see these things and understand, you know what? None of these things mattered when the eternity happened. You know, whatever they had here, what what mattered on the other side of this was their soul. And and so there they are. They're in this this place where you could understand this, that the value, like really what's valuable is eternity. It actually changes everything. Boy, I feel like I need to say that better, and I'm not. You know, the challenge that we began to see about money is, is to make sure we're investing into eternity, that we're living for eternity. And sometimes it also is equally important to recognize it really isn't about the now. It really is. I mean, these things, whatever, you know, whether we think we have it good or, or bad, I mean, that's not really it is. I mean, it's this other side of things that's going to change everything. That, that in one sense, that, that when that comes, there's, there's, no, there's no pain, there's no sorrow that's not going to be erased, and there's a reality that's there. Now, without diving in much deeper into this, I just want to tell you, there's this incredible account that Jesus is telling us of, of the rich man uh, and, and Lazarus and who they are and how Abraham's buzz, bosom works and how Hades works. And we could spend time on that, and it's a fascinating biblical kind of discussion of like, how does this work? I'm just going to tell you, hey, if you want to talk about that some other space, hey, come up and talk to me, talk to Pastor Phil. We'd love to kind of walk you through this. There's a fascinating thing of understanding how both the the abode of the dead, Hades, worked before Jesus died on the cross and how it works for us now. For you and I now as believers, Paul is really clear. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. This reality isn't ours, but this probably was the reality before the cross. Again, much that could be said in the midst of that, but I'll leave it enough to say either way it gives us this window. And as you're watching this window and you've watched this entire reversal that's happened in these two lives. You find this man who in verse 23, this rich man, says he's in torment. I mean, he's in torment in Hades. He lifts up his eyes. He sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cries out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me 
and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. There's this place of just gazing into this place of eternal destiny and torment and everything that's there. He says, okay, those choices they, they, that we make and, and, and have here, they, they settled there. They're not going to be changed. There's no space that even, he's like, well, could you just make it a little easier for me? Just send Lazarus to bring me a, a, a cup of, just to touch my, my tongue with water. He's like, can't happen. He says, that doesn't work this way. The, you made the choices you live. That's affecting now your eternity. And there's this gulf that's now fixed that can never be crossed. There's this place that's there that, again, just kind of lays for us this incredible weight. So out of that, we get what the man says. He says in verse 27, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they come also to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, the one rise from the dead. From this other side, from eternity, if I can put it to you in the most simple and I hope profound way, it's the souls that are valuable. I mean, here's this man that had everything in his life, this place where he had money, and now he's looking back. In one sense, he's longing for comfort now, and then he's going to make a request. And it's worth just hearing it clearly. He doesn't want to go back and challenge people to have more money. Boy, if they could just have what I have, I want to tell my, my brothers how they could, you know, buy into Bitcoin or, or how they could, you know, get the stock that's going to really bring them money. I mean, if I could just tell them that, that would be the thing that could change their destiny. He's like, no. He's like, I don't want him to come here. I don't want him to come here. I, I don't, I, 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 the, the, everything that seemed important to him his whole life have actually no value in this moment. There's not any space that the comforts that he had, the, the money that he had in the midst of it either gives him comfort or help or even longs for that for anybody else. The, the money means nothing to him at this moment. The only thing that really matters is, is, you know, one sense wanting his own comfort, finding out that's not possible. He longs to see others rescued. He longs to see, you know, them, them kind of persuaded to this. And so he has this crazy request. I've got five brothers who are living equally as foolishly as I did, would you send Lazarus back? Would you send him back from the dead? Abraham, who's having this conversation with him, which again, may not be a story. This may, little Jesus may be describing an actual event, which is just fun to think through. Abraham responds to him and says in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. They got the Bible. They have the scriptures. Let them hear what the Bible has to say. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to him from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they're not going to listen to the scriptures, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. 
I mean, there's this incredible place where he's speaking of the reality of this and, and from that side of things and, and everything that just speaks into this. So process this through with me for just a few moments. Part of this, part of this is talking about money. Part of this is seeing, hey, here's this man who had all of this all of his life. But on that space of it, it means nothing. You know, it, it was only about the here and the now. This, this place that he lived for and enjoyed, it, it doesn't rescue him in eternity, and it can do him no good. And, and as he's looking back on it, there's not any space that he would look back and say, if I just had had another dollar, if I, if I just could give other people this, there's something about seeing how pointless this is to live for money. That in one sense, that to have whatever the world says is there, it finds itself an incredibly empty. But it also challenges us again to see, okay, well, what's really valuable? It's not this. It's souls. It's people. It's that which the first principle called us to is to invest into it and to live for that, that, that really all that he longs for is that. Now, again, it's a troubling, and yet just I just want to say it carefully. You know, we think about everything that, that, that's, that's being laid out to us here and the value of, of what's really valuable isn't money. It, it really is souls. And there's a part of this even just wondering. You know, I mean, I, I find myself thinking, what a scary and yet sobering this is. I'm not sure I can say this well, but I'm going to give it a shot. You know, I don't know where you are. I don't know where anybody is that's online right now. And I definitely am not trying to play into the emotion of it, but I just want to ask. I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering if there's anybody who's, who, who's gone before you who's longing that you would change your course right now, that they, that they would be saying, oh, they're, they're making the same dumb choices I made. They're living for money in a way that doesn't satisfy, and, and that same destiny is going to be theirs. And they're pleading, and they're saying, do something miraculous, do something marvelous, do something to wake them up, send somebody from the dead to raise them. And Abraham says, that's not enough. If you won't hear it here, even the miraculous wouldn't change you. Even the miraculous wouldn't, wouldn't divert you from that course. And the long that that would be nobody in this room, then that would be nobody online right now, that if this is more than a story, and this is actually a reality of maybe what it looks like for some on the other side of death, and that somebody would say, I don't want you to come. I don't want you to end up where I am. I, I, I don't want you to be a part of this. Please, by, by God's grace here, don't, don't live for this foolish thing, because to live for what so many people live for, to live for the dollars, to make this your God, it leaves you just desperately empty. It leaves you eternally desperately empty, and He longs for us to see what that is. He longs for you and I to kind of get that, and I long for you to get it. That in so many ways, as we're thinking about everything that Jesus is challenging us, He's calling us in the way that we see money to see it the way that He would long for us to see it. So let's kind of begin to pull it to a close this way. I've given you six principles tonight and, and six kind of thoughts that throw out of this. And I want to just lead you in prayer, but I'm asking, like, is there one of these tonight that in some ways God's kind of putting his finger on you and saying, this is out of whack in your life? That in one sense, he says, okay, we should see this and be thinking of eternal treasure, not physical, not just living for now, not just living for retirement or having the boat or the car or any other thing that's there. It's like, I want to see things eternally. I want to see things eternally. 
that I want to do that. And that would roll all the way into our last one that really says, I recognize that souls are more important than any of these other things, that this eternity changes everything. There would be a way to see that, that this is not in that value place. In the midst of it, the challenge is that this would not be your God, that, that, that money is a terrible God. It's okay servant to us. God can work it in our lives and work through it, but it's a terrible God. To, to, to find ourselves thinking, okay, I don't want this to be the God in my life because it doesn't work. It doesn't save, it doesn't satisfy, and, and the reality is just to be moved away from that. So I'm going to lead you in prayer, and in the midst of it, hope that in the midst of this, God would both take this truth and apply it into our understanding, but also help us to be those who are changed by it. So would you join me right now? Let's go before him in prayer. Jesus, thank you for sharing, just taking truths that are so incredibly relevant. I know this this evening. There's not anybody in this room who doesn't have relationship with money, that money's a part of our existence. It's a part of our lives. God, would you help us to have the right relationship with money? That we would not be those who are just living for our own selves, but we'd be living for eternity. That God, first and foremost, we'd have this right relationship with you. That we wouldn't be those who have trusted in money or treasures as life. We'd look and say, none of these things really save. God, would you bring us into that place with that? Lord, I'm just even asking if there's somebody hearing my voice right now who's outside of this relationship with you in that sense, if there's somebody from eternity just pleading even now, oh, don't come here. God, I pray you'd rescue. I pray that you'd rescue and you would draw. God, with that, I just ask your, your favor and that and your help. And yet as I ask that, I recognize for many of us, we, we are yours. And yet this battle remains that, that you've told us no one can serve you and money. God, rescue us from it. Rescue us from that place of exalting money into a place that only you can be. Cause us to live for eternity and for eternal riches and eternal treasure and, and the value that is really valuable. God, would you rescue us? Would you help us? Would you be those who, who bring us into this place where, God, you are our God? Where we would recognize that you are all that we need and you're our Savior, you're our provider. God, I ask for that. I ask for your favor. I ask for your help. And I thank you that you're a good God working good in this. And I pray for that, trusting you to it, surrendering my life and our lives into your care. Would you lead us and build us in your ways? We pray for that together. In Jesus' name, amen.